everyone for today i'm joined with anthony from twin peaks grammar we're going to discuss uh bradley and ronnie mitchum but before we get into them i'm gonna hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further okay thanks colin uh what a pleasure to see you and to be here and uh, i really appreciate the invite especially for this episode because i love i love the mitchum brothers very very much and i have pictures of them plastered all over my computers and whatnot so well a little bit about me i'm a middle school English teacher, former high school teacher. That's my day job. I'm a parent with a couple of kids and a great wife and a very, very pleasant kind of simple life. And I like to go on Twitter, probably a little too much. There I'm, I guess, known as Twin Peaks Grammar. And then I started a, a podcast recently and a YouTube channel. And I'm having a lot of fun just talking about Twin Peaks, asking a lot of questions, um, trying to learn from people around me. And uh Lately, really having a lot of conversations with cool people, and I'm really looking forward to this with you. Oh, perfect. But I guess the first thing to start off with is that we don't get too much about uh, Bradley or Rodney's upbringing, but there's a couple things that are implied both uh, behind the scenes and on the show. The earliest one I can think of is that there's a scene where behind the scenes where Lynch is talking to Robert Neppert and Jim Belushi about how close the brothers are, how long they've known each other. Was there anything of that dynamic that really stood out to you from either what Lynch said or something you've seen on the show? Yeah, well, I loved I loved when Rodney references their orphanages. I mean, their orphanage that you didn't you didn't know that was coming until I don't know maybe episode part eleven or whatnot. So that was cool. That was a nice little surprise, and that gave a lot of uh, a lot of depth to the characters. Yeah, I meant to watch the behind the scenes stuff, and I didn't get to it this week. So later, you could refresh me a little bit on what Lynch says to them. But their background is, in my opinion, just speculating about it is at least as interesting as what we see on the screen. Because, okay, so they they came from an orphanage. We don't know if they're actually brothers. You know, they might have they might have just been adopted by the same family we don't know if they have any biological relationship do we i don't think we know i guess it's not confirmed but i always thought that they were brothers um obviously nothing like identical but just like one was older one was younger i always kind of took that ronnie was the older of the two just uh i mean we'll get to the difference between the two but just the intensity and the assertiveness he has where it just seemed like he was leading the charge out of the two yeah, and he's definitely the, the the tougher looking, I would say, and the tougher acting, at least when it comes to physical stuff. But yeah, I was always like really kind of unsure. So I'm not sure if that matters or not. Um, but that's a little bit interesting. But the fact that they came from, you know, that background to basically building an empire and the skill set that they must have developed along the way, I find extremely interesting mm-hmm. to think how they came, you know, from there to here. And uh, I don't know if the heart of gold thing like just emerged after they met Dougie. Um, I think it was always there. I think their nasty side was always there. Yeah, I think they're probably rather complex off screen and on. If they're even real, I assume they're real, but I'm treating them as if they're real. 
but yeah, yeah, they're, I mean, their backstory is really fun to think about. Do you have any like uh, speculations or, or would you, or do you like to stick like strictly to the text itself? Do you like oh. to imagine like what their upbringing was like? Uh, there's a couple things I read between the lines on. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things I do think about is that it's when they're, uh, when they're really trying to help the Jones family where uh, they get the jungle gym for Sunny Jim. And they're talking about like how I, I'm pretty sure that it's uh, Rodney that says that, oh, even our orphanage had a gym. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just something about how how insistent they are on that in particular, where maybe it was like a bonding thing of sorts. Maybe that was like their thing to really keep them, uh, to, you know, to keep their mind off of other things. Because I, I haven't been through an orphanage personally, but I imagine that there's a lot of circumstances that aren't easy. And it's like the one thing that could help them. And even they to go along with Sonny Jim for a little bit, it's like once he gets the gym, like he's just ecstatic to have it. So that's those are the only two things I really have about them when they're younger. But yeah, it's really just what Lynch said and some about the gym dynamic that uh, that that always stood out to me. Yeah, gym set, which is a a great expression. That's an old school expression, I imagine. I, I feel like I I feel like I used to hear that from my uncle. Or maybe even my grandfather, but that's not like not a phrase that's used very much anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, every kid needs a gym set, and uh, I love that expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole gym set scene is like super weird. You know, that, that that's like somewhere in between reality and fantasy, as far as I could tell. So I actually I have to say this about the gym set. I don't <laughs> know if this is just me being like a, an adult or just like looking at something needlessly complex, but. It's always bugged me that that gym set was built in the grass. Like, there's no gravel, there's no mulch. All I could think of is that, how do you mow around this? And how can you make it look good? And again, maybe that says something about me, but that's always been the thing that stood out to me during that scene. Um, I I know that there's a lot more going for it, and I think Lynch wanted to go with what looked aesthetically pleasing, but that's always been something that's just, like, just been, like, in in my mind, no matter how many times I rewatch it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I have a we have a set of swings in my backyard, and then we we put a pool up for the summer, like kind of like a, a temporary pool. So I have to use my I have to move my swing set to the grass portion of the yard, and it's a pain in the ass to mow the grass. <laughs> You're hundred percent right, but I mean that is that is like not pure reality as far as I could tell in that um, gym set scene. At least it doesn't have the feeling of it. It feels as it feels as real as like a lot of this, a lot of the candy stuff does. You know, like there's something really, really odd, off, somewhat musical, lyrical, even in terms of like the color scheme or the lighting. It's just, it just has that feeling of something is different here to me. I'm, I'm glad you brought up candy because I think this coincides with how we're going to view the Mitchum brothers, or at least in the context of just like the Vegas world, for like a better term. Yeah. Okay. But what is it that you think about with uh, when it comes to candy? What is it you think that Rodney and uh, Bradley Mitchum like seeing her? Because in theory, they have Sandy and Mandy that could do the exact same tasks and could potentially do it just faster. But there's something about candy. Uh, you know, I have my thoughts, but well, you know, I want to hear what you think. Yeah, she's definitely the head waitress or or head honcho, so to speak. And could it be that the other two can't talk? I mean, maybe they haven't been programmed to use language and only Candy has. I I mean, I'm half kidding. This is, you know, as if they're programmed beings or Tulpa-esque beings or whatnot. And that's something that's fun to think about. I remember reading something that John Bernardi wrote 
but I can't tell you like the, the thesis of it. It was a fun piece. And it's like, hey, maybe Candy grew up on TV. Like maybe she grew up watching like game shows, daytime game shows and whatnot. Because when you look at her mannerisms and her speech and the things she actually says, oftentimes it's like you could see this somebody pitching a product or awarding a prize on a game show. So that's fun to think about. Um, is this a real human being? Um, possibly. And if this is a real human being, do you know anybody who acts this way even sometimes? And if, if somebody acts this way sometimes, what are those times when they act like this? Do you, you have any thoughts on that? Uh, for me, I actually think that Candy is very central to the Mitchum Brothers because we talk about how Dougie, who is like a major component of having the 180 from being the hardened criminals to the hearts of gold. But yeah. I think Candy, I kind of think of her as like what Dougie Jones does for Sonny Jim and Janie E, Candy does for uh, Bradley and Rodney. Because there's something about how Dougie and Candy, they don't seem to understand from a surface the like basic, basic ways of life, but yeah. they seem to always push these people in a certain trajectory. And I think that's what it is with Candy, where there are just certain things where it just seems frustrating and it's very long-winded, but there's a there, there's a roadmap and it's a combination of putting the these people on the right path and also them finding themselves. I think it's just that with a focus on Dougie Jones and we're seeing it not from the outside looking in, but knowing who Cooper is. Uh, so I, that's how I look as that there's someone, there's something more, more to candy where it's like what we see in the show that she is more than this, that maybe, maybe it's not the same journey as, you know, I, I don't think it's like quite from the black lodge into the real world, mm -hmm. but there's something, there's an omnipresent quality to her. And like, it's almost like a mission to, get them on the road to get to Dougie. And then after that, it's just kind of up to them. So I think that's why Candy has a certain allure over Sandy and Mandy. And it's why she's picked for all these tasks when she technically doesn't have to do them. Yeah, I, I would, uh, I, I really like a lot of what you're saying. And, and there's definitely a lot of um, Candy. We'll call him Dougie just for the time being, even if it's Cooper. Um, a lot of overlap between the two of them. They, <laughs> they're like maddeningly frustrating. They require like an inordinate amount, an inordinate amount of patience, and maybe there's much more to the eye. You know, like you're right. I mean, it's I don't know how these universes work, and I'll use plural universes, but perhaps she's in some sort of state of her own elsewhere. You know, and and this is like the Dougie version of her that's out in the world, um, partly incapacitated, but maybe radiating some sort of, you know, energy that, that rubs off on other people. I mean, she could hit, <laughs> she could cut somebody's, she could cut her boss's face open, you know, and without really eliciting any anger from the guy at all. I think that's the. I think that's where I really started with that whole theory of mine. Is that we when we see the Mitchum brothers, it's like you don't mess with these guys. Or even the first time when they yell Candy's name, I mean, you don't think that they're gonna hit her the way they hit like the previous owner of the silver Mustang. But you, you still have this feeling of like something can go really bad if she doesn't get on it. But then there's that scene where she hits uh, Ronnie with the remote. And not only, I mean, obviously he's not happy about it, but, you yeah. know, he's like, he's actually trying to calm her down. And it feels like, for me, that's the first time that we see 
uh, both the brothers where they're being restrained or there's a certain point where they say like, no, we can't get, get rid of Shell, nowhere else to go. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel like there's uh, even some characters in the Vegas plot where they wouldn't really care. Like, you know, if it was someone else, they could be like, oh, who cares? We don't need her anymore. But there's something about the allure of Candy and like what it and how it helps them, in my opinion, on a subconscious level that keeps her there. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I never got the thought for a second that they would lay a hand on her. I just, I never got that vibe. Um, I think they segment their violent behaviors, their business behaviors, you know, their personal behaviors. I think in order for them to have achieved their status in life, that they've had to develop that skill set. And and um, so I, I think they're way more skilled than they're often talked about. I, this could just be my own personal bias. Um, I'm, it could be like, I'm, I'm, I'm Italian from New Jersey, like going to the casinos has always been a thing since I was a kid, you know, it was always like part of the culture over here and having a sense of tough, bad dudes that have hearts of gold that, that will bend over backwards for anybody who's close to them, you know, and could make very, very clear and like emotionless dividing lines between like who's in and who's out. Even when they were beating the crap out of the, I forget the guy's name, you know, the guy who they had to fire. Um, mm -hmm. I think that is, it's not very nice, but I think that's part of their package of skills that like allowed them to get where they are and maintain their, like <laughs> maintain their status. This is going to sound random, but I was thinking about, was thinking about Bob yesterday or today and, you know, Bob's got to eat. You know, sorry, sorry to go back to the Bob character, but Bob has to eat, doesn't he? So I figured, like, he's got to do his thing and sucks to be in the way. That's really bad. But that guy's going to have to eat somehow. So he's going to have to create his situation where he gets his food. And I think the Mitchums kind of have to, they got to do their thing, too. So beating the crap out of that guy is kind of part of the uh, <laughs> part of the job, like part of that world. Uh, it's not very nice, though, but I think that's part of, like, getting where they were and staying where they are. You know, I actually, believe it or not, this is not that off topic for the next scene I'm going to talk about, because this is a scene that I think is very much key to the Mitchum brothers, uh, both in terms of who they are and also how they fit in the wider aspect. It's the scene where it's uh, it's the day they're going to go see Dougie Jones. Uh, it's actually Bradley who's actually more aggressive than Rodney this time. Yeah. And uh, the thing is that these are so there's uh, two things that are in this scene. One of which is uh, I have to credit Martin from Lynchbricks and Christian Hartleban for uh, both talking together and, and pointing this out with uh, Rodney Mitchum. Uh, he's not actually eating cereal. Uh, they actually both discussed it and that it's actually corn in milk. Uh, and there's something about that where, which I can only imagine how Robert Nepper felt, uh, felt had to having to eat that uh, on a, on a couple takes. But I think there's some about the use of corn that, uh, that he's ingesting that coincides with his aggressiveness. And also, cause the thing is that they, the only cereal box they have, I think it's like raised bran crunch and it clearly is not that. Okay. Uh, but the other one is that, it's actually Bradley Mitchum. He's the one that points out it's 2.23 p.m. And he even shows the clock. I don't know why, but I feel like there's some vague connection to it being 2.23 p.m. And the fact that in part 17, Cooper goes back to February 23rd. Hmm. There's just something about the turning point of where the Mitchum brothers are and like these two things that 
I, I, I gotta be honest, I don't think I'll ever have a proper articulation for it, but I feel like those are two things that are very hard to overlook. Did you have any thoughts on these two independently or how they fit together? I noticed the 2.23 p.m. I thought about it. I didn't come up with anything. So I like what you're saying there. You know, my first thought was 2.53, 2.23. Now there's really no connection there. Um, so that's pretty cool. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that in a minute. And uh, Bradley never touches. <laughs> he never actually puts any cereal in his mouth. So and their performances in that scene are definitely one of the highlights of the whole season. You know, the way Robert Nepper is like sucking on his teeth, <laughs> you know, like pinky picking his, his tooth and stuff. And uh, and Belushi's so close to eating and he just can't eat it. He has to push the bowl away. And some of my favorite lines are from that scene. Um, now that you say that it's corn, uh, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. You know, if we wanted to go deep, if we wanted to sort of see metaphorical potential there, I'm not sure. Yeah, not, not sure if it's worth mentioning, but uh, also, and maybe these are just colors that Lynch happens to like, mm -hmm. but there's something about with Rodney where he's wearing black with a gold robe, and then uh, Bradley's wearing something akin to, I think it's a mix of red and black, where they're, they're colors that Lynch loves using, but I think that just with all the symbolism that at least I see in the scene, I wasn't sure if the colors of what they're wearing coincides with any of it, but... Yeah, I was so uh, there's there's somewhere there's all these little things I can see, and I have a hard time believing Lynch just put it in arbitrarily. So, but I also feel like I can never come up with like a proper articulate answer for why it's there, especially the two twenty three p.m. Uh, coinciding with going back to February twenty third. Run with that a little bit. So, okay, let's say it does coincide with Feb twenty three. So what? I, I guess the the only thing I could think of uh, that would really connect it is the Mitchum brothers are there in part 17 right before Cooper, Cole, and then uh, Diane disappear. And that's when Cooper subsequently goes back in time. I, again, it's, it's the tiniest little thing. But again, there's so much where I feel like I'm so close yet so far away on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I can get you any closer. Um, but but that, is, that is a really interesting point. To, to what extent they're even there in the sheriff station. I still have my doubts. Um, or, or to what extent things go down as they appear to go down. Yeah. I'm not it, sure. Yeah. Cause as much as they, as I love Robert Nepper and uh, Jim Belushi, there does reach a point where once you get to part 16, they do have a certain passivity in terms of what they can or cannot do to, you know, really add to the dynamic. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that point, uh, one of my favorite scenes of them is actually when they see Dougie Jones in the desert, because this is where we really see the change of characterization, not only just with like just because they get the check, but also how they interact with each other about the dream. Uh, I guess before we go into that, did you have any thoughts about Bradley's dream and how this fits in a larger framework? Yes. Um, who can can dreams? First of all, can dreams be like planted? Because that's, I think that's one of the first obvious questions. Like, who who planted this dream into into Bradley's mind or into his sleep state or whatever? Um, I I think that scene, I think the breakfast scene, if I'm remembering correctly, I could be wrong. I think it's like intercut with some of the uh, Philip Gerard in the red room stuff, or or it might be the part eleven scene. 
uh, like later in the episode. But you know, there are some illusions there that that Mike or Cooper or Red Room Cooper are involved in messing with these dreams in some way. So it's in, I always like to think whether like Cooper in the Red Room is conducting these things to some sense. Is is he sneaking into their dreams or is he utilizing? Um, I know John Thorne refers to like Z forces, which are various characters that seem to either protect uh, protect Cooper in some way or stop Dougie from getting killed or inter interfere with the story in some way. Um, I wonder if like Red Room Cooper is like the point guard of that team. So that so that right there is is interesting because that's not some random dream because all the other factors coincide. You know, Gerard or Mike or whoever it is waving Dougie into Zyman's to get... By the way, have you ever seen a... a I've worked in my, the restaurant business my whole life. There is no pie box that looks like that. I, I you know, it's. I've worked in a restaurant. I don't think I ever worked anything involving pie, but I. that's one thing I thought. is It's a little nasally large. It feels like one of those, like, some shipping from Amazon. Uh, it feels like it's a little <laughs> too, too nasally large for, for this sort of thing. Which makes it just hilarious. I mean, that, the scene, the whole buildup in that scene is just absolutely masterful it's, it's perfection um but while they're in the limo you know they're still talking about the dream their their vibe together as a duo as brothers is just top notch um i love when bradley tries to take the uh the band-aid off and you could you could hear rod he's like you could hear him say it, it's gonna hurt <laughs> he doesn't get he doesn't get the last line out but he's like oh no no no, it's gonna hurt and, and you see these two big guys ripping off this little tiny band-aid so yeah, so he rips the band-aid off, there's no cut. So I mean obviously we're mixing maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but you know, we seem to be mixing realities in some way. Um or blurring lines in some way. What do you think about that band-aid? Um I mean I, I there's the I mean I, there's the whole behind the scenes aspect where it kind of worked as a happy accident. I I always thought that in the case of the band-aid Oh, wow. Okay. I guess maybe I never really had like a good articulate answer. I think it was just something that I kind of accepted of how there's almost like a healing aspect where, uh, again, uh, I, I know it's maybe not the best way to describe it, but they're just something uh, almost like prophetic where there's like, I think there's just so many prophetic signs uh, because of Bradley's dream. And it's like as far fetched as it is, it's like all these random circumstances happen to work out. Because I think of the dynamic with uh, Bradley and Rodney, where once Cooper shows up, and uh, and the thing is that uh, it's actually Bradley's trying to calm down. It's like, hey, if it's this one thing, we cannot kill him. <laughs> and strange enough, Rodney gets even more aggressive than if he probably didn't say anything. Where he pulls a gun out and it's like, a hey, check him. Like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. Because now you're bringing now you're bringing insanity into the mix. You know, and we already have this situation on our hands. You know, and now you got to bring this nonsense in. So yeah, Rodney's ready to blow at that point. Yep. Um, and oh, so you go on. No, please, please. Oh no, no. I was gonna say is that there's that great stark contrast because you know that you know that Dougie slash Cooper has that has that check on him, but there's always that part of me like, oh, if they just miss him, maybe this could go wrong. But then you see them get the check, and the way that they the way that they cheer, it it genuinely brings a smile on my face because. This is where we see the real turning point where they're not just the hardened criminals, but they're like these like really fun guys and they're really just like genuinely happy. And, uh, you know, it's like because the thing is that they technically could have just given Dougie Jones like, hey, here's like some money or something. 
But the fact that they become so involved with the Joneses' lives is, uh, yeah. I think it really adds a great deal to these characters. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, see, I think that's their true selves, like, coming out right there. That mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think they've been changed into that. I think that's, you know, that's who they are when they're, when things are going well. When they're with their people, mm-hmm. you know? Like, uh, I, I, know, I know they're not Italian. I know they're named after Robert Mitchum, who... He was not Italian, but you know they got the whole Italian vibe, with a little bit of a twist. You know the, the typical sort of Italian gangster vibe, and and those people are often extremely, extremely loving. You know, ex- extremely warm, and also cold as ice. You know when need be. So you get a little bit. You get all of that in that scene, and and I love it. Um, can I try something out with you? Ah, uh, sure. What is it? I'm gonna try something from my classroom. So it's like uh, so let's just take the candy cut. Okay, and we're gonna just try to do do a little symbolism thing because you're good at it. You're good at finding symbolism, and interpreting things. And I have noticed that. And I don't know if it's something you work at, or you just kind of have a flair for it. But my job as a teacher is to try to make what people are good at like comprehensible <laughs> to people who are not yet good at it. So let's start with like the literal role, or like the the way. What's the literal appearance? of the candy cut like what literally happens without any interpretation uh just the cut it's really just like a i mean it's a deep cut on the cheek uh mm-hmm. it kind of just goes in it's like have kind of a it kind of has the right curve like it you can kind of tell it also looks a little inflamed like it's kind of puffing out a little bit um is that the is that the answer that we're going yeah, for? yeah and it was and it and, and it was received during a uh, accidental hit you know in their home when Candy was Candy was chasing a fly around the room, first with a napkin, and then with the next object in hand, and then while swinging for something else, she ended up accidentally hitting, I guess her boss or her friend, and busting his face open. And then, um, so all this is true so far, right? Mm-hmm. And presumably this was not, and presumably this was accidental, not some sort of like late in hostility or anything like that. And then later, uh, miraculously, after his brother has a dream that the cut will be gone, they remove the Band-Aid, and lo and behold, I'll be damned, the cut is not there. So is there? Is, so I guess those are the literal properties. All that stuff is true so far, right? Yes. Is, so is, is there anything else that might share like similar qualities You know this cut? You know, I, I was actually thinking about it because I didn't quite have an articulate answer for why the cut disappeared. But one thing that is worth mentioning is that uh, we have that great scene where the Mitchum brothers and Dougie, they're enjoying the pie at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, there's a really touching scene with the music. The old woman he helped, uh, you know, at uh, Silver Mustang also talked about how great he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but I think the thing to really pertain to this dreamlike aspect is that... I should look at the cut a little bit more, but the thing I was honed in on is that that the next episode, the only time we see Kyle McLaughlin is when Sonny Jim throws a baseball and it hits him. But it's the next episode or the next part where we see that the Mitchum brothers and uh, and Dougie and then Candy, Sandy, and Mandy, they're at uh, Lucky Seven Insurance, and it's like literally it's like the day after, or it's like all night partying. So there is something dreamlike about. 
uh, about how Dougie, he was playing with Sonny Jim, and then it cuts to what's clearly an event right after the, the cherry pie uh, scene. Yeah, so that's that's either some sort of like error in editing or continuity or or something weird is going on there because they've been up all night. Apparently, you know, like when they conga line their way in to the lucky seven, they've been up all night, it seems. And and drinking because because they're coming in pretty lit. Yeah. Um, And there's that whole part like, hey, don't tell your wife. And Dougie just says wife and they just start laughing. (laughs) Uh, I I will say is that I think it was John Thorne that put this in Blue Rose years back. But I think he said that there's a possibility it's not really a plot hole, that there's some dreamlike. And he did provide a, you know, behind the scenes aspect that because Kyle McLaughlin is like the starring role, they mm. need to have at least one scene per part. And yeah. this was just the one scene that uh, Lynch seemed to just uh, gravitate towards. So I, I that's one thing I was trying to strike a balance of what's going on behind the scenes versus what affects like what we finally see. So there's there's a lot to go with that in terms of what this means for the flow of the Mitchum brothers and like how dreamlike it is versus how real. So I I would say that the candy cut would probably be a foreshadowing, but there's something about that cut of Sonny Jim playing baseball with Dougie in between what's clearly the Mitchum brothers celebrating. That's definitely worth addressing. Yeah. So there's another cut and uh, I wonder how many other cuts are in the return. I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously a lot of editing cuts, but it's interesting. So then, yeah. So then we have this thing that is just, it wasn't there and then it's there and then it's no longer there again. And I don't, I don't have any uh, read on it. Like I don't have any symbolic interpretation, but I, I don't know. I was just wondering if you thought it signified something. Maybe you said healing. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's some about the healing aspect and something about Bradley's dream probably being an influence because again, it's like his, his dream is very circumstantial and it's like, I mean, would you say it's even like when when Major Briggs in the season two premiere where he said it's a difference between a dream and a vision? Do you think it's actually a vision that Bradley had? Because uh, everything just seems so visceral from the way that he talks about it. And uh, and everything just seems to line up so perfectly as well. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, great thought. Really, really nice. What do you mean by vision in your way? Um, I I would say that dreams where there's a there's more of an active interpretation, but with what Major Briggs talks about in season two and what Bradley talks about um, in in the return, it seems more like hard line, like that something very clearly is happening. Because, you know, when Briggs, he talks about Bobby, where it's like he not he right now he's directionless, but he'll be fine in the long run. mm -hmm. And then the case of uh, with Bradley, he uh, has the vision that. Uh, Rodney's cut is completely gone, and the cherry pie million one chance in his in, in his opinion, but the cherry pie is indeed in that box. So I think there's something where with a dream like it's open for interpretation, but visions are more of like a clear cut, at least to their perception. So visions might also have have like some sort of access to the future, possibly. Honestly, yeah, I'd, I'd say that. I mean, I know in the case of Major Briggs, that was like way further down the road, but uh, mm-hmm. Bradley's happened to be the right one at the right time, and it really helped the trajectory for everyone involved. It's it's possible that they actually got a glimpse, maybe, of the future. Um, I don't know how that happens in the real world. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have any sense that time traveling is a thing, but I know there's like time bending and stuff like that. Um, and I know there are a lot of interesting theories about what deja vu might be. 
um, there's a whole nother realm of thought like called the simulation theory that I don't know much about, but there's a lot of talk within that space. You know, the time is kind of works in a circle and that people can be simultaneously located in different points in time, at, you know, at, at once. Uh, I, I'm not smart enough to really get into that or, or like versed enough, but um, I don't know. That would be one possible explanation that's very far-fetched, how this dream or vision as you present it, you know, could have went down. Um, I think it's probably like forces from inside the Red Room meddling in some way or, or I mean, that would be a really classic example of uh, Cooper's life being protected, you know, by some sort of outside force. He's he's literally called in, you know, to Zyman's to get the uh, cherry pie. By the way, if he got shot, you know, it would have been funny. He would have got shot probably right through the check, <laughs> thereby voiding the $30 million check. Mm -hmm. But but. I guess I guess you know to kind of go on with this because uh, Dougie is such a huge component to it. Mm -hmm. I guess I, it's probably worth mentioning how I view Dougie at a cursory glance is that I kind of view that if Mister C is the deepest darkest recesses of Dale Cooper, because uh, for me it's like you know you look at all the stuff that Mister C can do where it's like he's a billionaire but he doesn't really care about money. Uh, it kind of coincides with how Cooper how. He can gamble in the, at the end of season at the end of season one, and he's confident that he can get all this money. But it's it's kind of a secondary thing; it's a means to an end. But then you look at Dougie, where there's all the little things of like you know, if Cooper, if Mister C is like this active evil in the world, that the exact opposite would be a passive good. And I think that with uh, Dougie, it's really up to other people to kind of guide him in a direction, but it'll help everyone, including him. Uh, and again, like we can say what we will about when he becomes Del Cooper if he does the right thing, but that's how I view uh, Dougie and like how he'll help the Mitchum brothers from this point on. Yeah, that's interesting when you say that uh, his passiveness allows other people to, uh, uh, I guess, to adopt or achieve possibly even or grow into or take on um, some sort of role that might not be in their natural, you know, like their natural comfort zone or, you know, natural habits and thereby be becoming improved in some way is, is there um is there like a like a theme <laughs> or like a walk away like a little like message or less or like a learning point in the mitchum brothers trajectory in your point oh. that's another, that's like another thing kind of like from from like a middle school classroom you might look at a plot thread you know and like from beginning to end and say is there anything for us here I, well, I think the, I mean, I, I forgive me if it's something I've already addressed, but I really, I really just hone in on the, what we see as the hardened criminals and uh, at least from how I view it, Candy and Dougie, how they bring out the best in them. Because uh, when, when you get to that part in uh, part 16, when they're like, oh, we, you know, we shouldn't go to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. We're not really the type of guys that are welcome to that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, you, you almost, you just kind of forget at that point, like, yeah, these guys are hardened criminals because you're just so used to at least those last six parts where they're so prominently good and caring yeah. because you know you think of like what it takes to run like a, a casino uh, i mean put aside that vegas really isn't my thing but to facilitate that type of thing that you know for them to really just spend so much time with the joneses that that's like oh that's a huge thing that they're going out of their way for yeah and uh they're, they're certainly they're certainly attracted to and attached to that family. 
you know what I was thinking about earlier today? It's kind of in line with what you were saying. Um, I forget the guy's name who's their limo driver, but he's like their personal Mitchum Brothers limo driver, and and Dougie gets the lim- gets that driver. You know, after he wins the Mister Jackpots thing, like that's that's the same limo driver. I never even home. noticed that. I, yeah, I so it's like right from the start, he's getting like the Mitchum brothers, like personal guy. You know? Oh wow, that's uh, oh, oh okay, that that's uh, I, I you know I I've, I've watched the return four times and it yeah. never crossed my mind. I, I think I just saw the guy, except like oh, it's a limo driver. Yeah. Uh, apart from the scene when they're standing outside of uh, the Joneses' home, but. Wow, that's a really good eye on your part. Um, I, I I don't know if I really can say too much with just trying to figure that out, but I've yeah, I I got I got to give you credit for figuring that one out. Yeah, I wonder if uh, I wonder if part of the reason that guy got his got his ass kicked and he got kicked like in the side seven times on the ground. I, I wonder if a small part of it is because he he gave Mister Jackpots like their personal limo limo driver to take him home. I don't Honestly, think so. I just think it's kind of funny. Honestly, like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't actively discount it. I again, it's like it's a really interesting observation, and um, yeah, it's uh, that's one I gotta let sink in. But I, I would like to think that it's like a little thing. It's like a little straw that broke the camel's back type of ordeal. Yeah, yeah. But I love thinking about the Mitchum brothers' various employees because even even Sabrina Sutherland is an employee of the Mitchum brothers, and mm-hmm. they have so many cool and uh, you know fun to spend time with employees. I love I love the main delivery guy. Um, he, I love his outfit. He's got that cool Mitchum Brothers jumpsuit. Um, he's got this great way of talking. I I looked up his name. I, I wrote it down somewhere, but he he is an awesome name too. Um, he's an Israeli actor. But the the woman who gives him change, you know, for the five dollars, the woman at the uh, the change counter, she's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, Every time I see her, like I have to rewind the scene and like watch it two or three times. She just she reminds me of a relative personally. That might just be a personal thing. She's super cool, you know. She's like really got a lot of empathy for him right from the start. Um, she seems like a normal human being in a show that doesn't have as many normal human beings. Um, yeah, they have so many cool employees, and uh, I don't know. I just like thinking about that. That they they are bosses, you know. And then they have, and then they have Candy, Mandy, Sandy, who presumably are their employees. Maybe I guess uh, I don't know. I just like thinking about them as bosses. And I guess I, I sort of a not that they're not necessarily a coworker, but uh, one character that is kind of important pertaining to them is Anthony Sinclair, because mm-hmm. uh, like there's that part where it is admittedly before we yeah, everything we talk about with uh, Bradley's dream. But the thing is that there's that whole ordeal where they say that they don't trust this guy one bit, but he can still manage to weasel his way into saying like, oh, I did everything I was supposed to. Dougie was the one that screwed you over. Uh, did you have anything about Anthony Sinclair relative to the Mitchum brothers and how, how they were, look at him? Yeah, I, li- I love the way that scene is played. And I, I, I forgot about that scene, actually, because at no point was I thinking that they were buying what he was selling. You know, and I thought that was kind of cool. They were just kind of playing it neutral. They were not impressed with Anthony Sinclair. He looked like a buffoon. Um, and up until the t- from the time he arrived to the time he left, I got no sense that they believed what he was selling. You know, selling. And then apparently, apparently they did. 
because they took that on pretty quickly. So that actually that actually diminished the Mitchum brothers a little bit in my eyes. Because they, you know, they were a little bit uh quick quick to jump on his storyline. You know, I guess quick to embrace the enemy thing. I will say that um, in my takeaway from their scene with Anthony Sinclair, I think that they don't—they generally don't really trust him. But there's a lot of factors about Dougie Jones that um, that they already just don't like. Like for example, yeah. Uh, yeah. there's a the whole thing where uh, they had a uh, off-screen rivalry with Ike the Spike, and despite the fact that Dougie took him out and even took the whole hand. That mm-hmm. it still doesn't quite negate how they feel about Dougie. So I think that Anthony Sinclair was just this little thing to just uh, to just kind of etch them in some way. Like maybe it wasn't as effective as like anything else, but it it kind of fits the characters of you know Anthony Sinclair would try to weasel his way into a situation, but the Mitchum brothers, it's just one more thing to throw in the pile about Dougie. Yeah, yeah, they they wouldn't have he wouldn't have been able to persuade them like from scratch. But if they're already about to be tipped over to the edge. They, they didn't need much, you know, I, I, I guess they didn't need much incentive. Oh, he yeah. Appealed to their, uh, he appealed to their confirmation bias, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I guess the, uh, since we've established everything about Anthony and how he, it kind of worked and failed for him at the same time. Uh, was there anything about, like, the Mitchum brothers now that they're, like, on about helping the Joneses? Because I actually think these are the most heartwarming scenes in, like, I would say next to Cooper waking up, like, you know, in Vegas, I would say that these ones are up there because you you hear about how Janie E, where she talks about how they're barely scraping by, that their cars aren't that good. Hmm. Uh, right. I guess one thing that's worth mentioning about Janie E is that, you know, they do have that $400,000, but they're more worried about Sonny Jim and what to do with him in the future. And so for the Mitchum brothers to, like, you know, get the gym set that we mentioned to uh, after after Dougie uh, electrocutes himself, they go out of their way to make sure that they get food and they stockpile. Um, you know, there are just so many things that they go out of their way for that they don't have to personally do, but they decide to do so. Yeah. And even the uh, I guess the slot addicted lady who shows up at Santino's t- technically her life has been turned around through uh, the money that Mr. Jackpots won, which was, in their view, like it was initially like stolen money, you know, dirty money. Uh, and they have nothing but goodwill toward her. You know, they're just like wrapped up in a, in a, in a moment of good feelings. But the, can you just repeat the question about their relationship with Janie E? What, what exactly were you asking? Oh, just, uh, it was really just more so a comment about how Janie E and how, uh, how they go out of their way to help the Joneses. But uh, I guess if we're going to talk about Janie E, what I was mentioned about Sonny Jim, though, mm-hmm. that was more so about how, because earlier where it's like they had, like when Dougie wins that like $400,000, mm-hmm. uh, there's the whole thing where it's like they're not going to like spend it. They're not trying to do anything too crazy with it. That they're the type of family where they're like Sonny Jim takes yeah. precedent for them. So, it, so it's really just one nice thing where it's like, you know, you see how the love that they have for their son and how like uh, and how like with the Mitchum brothers where they're personally helping with every little thing with the family. And it seems like Sonny Jim is like really, you know, he, he gets a lot out of it as well. And, uh, yeah. you know, because you think of like what the Dougie Tolpa was like beforehand where, you know, it's like a, he's barely at work. He's like spent his money on hookers. Uh, there's presumably a lot of arguments, so it's not really easy for Sonny Jim to deal with that sort of lifestyle. It's certainly not easy for Janie E, but 
it's this little thing, not little, but this big thing that the Mitchum brothers do, because not only is the, are, is the, everything we mentioned, but they get a BMW for, I think it's at yeah. least one for the Joneses. I, it might even be two. Um, I, I, forget, I forget which one it is, but they do go out of their way to get a very nice car for, yeah. for, uh, for Dougie. Yeah, they take care of that family. I mean, they hook them up in every way possible. And it's interesting to think about um, to, to what extent does their own personal childhood play into this? Um, what what acts of help or kindness or assistance might they have, you know, might they have been the recipients of along the way? Um, maybe it was so long ago that it's gone dormant and then it's kind of like woken up again. We don't know. Or, or maybe like, as I like to think, they're kind of like this. This is just on volume 10. You know, like they're like this to the people they're close with. Mm-hmm. And they're nasty to the people they're not. Um, I think that kind of fits the character type as well. But um, they want to take care of Sonny Jim. They want to take care of Dougie's family right down to the pantry. And uh, I just think, I don't think they like changed so much as maybe this this part has just the volume on this particular knob. I think, you know, I think they have a lot of different knobs on their uh, on their soundboard. This one has just been turned up. And with good reason. I mean, you know, they got thirty. They got thirty million in their pocket very recently. Um, did they make any of these moves before that check? I don't think so. Certainly not towards Dougie. I mean, it's not impossible that they did something good off screen or before yeah. the return. But as far as Dougie's family, no, it was like yeah. right after that check came through. Yeah, but we have seen them do some good things, presumably. Yeah. Oh, actually, uh, with Andy, it, you know. Go ahead, please. Oh, I was gonna say is that I I forgot to mention is that one of the things they do when they go to Lucky Seven is that they get all these nice things for Bushnell Mullins, who again like is like more indirect to Dougie, but they still feel the need to be generous towards him because uh you know it's his company and uh, this was the company that really got them the check you know eventually. Yeah, and there's some great lines in that scene. <laughs> I think the first line is like "Battling Bud, you're the man." Mm-hmm. Um. And who wrote the music to that, to that conga song? I've been I've been trying to find it like for days now. You know, I, now that you, now that you mention it, I never really looked up who it was because I I don't think it's Angelo Palamenti, and it doesn't sound like Dean Hurley either. Um, that that's one where I genuinely have no clue who made that song. Particular, <laughs> I'm sure it's like a Google search away, but at least in terms of what I have offhand, I couldn't tell you for sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's like the most bizarre and fun and like cute and it's on a loop i believe i think it's the same thing over and over and over again so you know that that's fitting with the show mm-hmm. um but that whole scene i think that is the first scene of the episode so like we just open up with that scene which is setting such a great vibe mm-hmm. um any thoughts on candy in that scene and her actions or just her tone <laughs> her excitement her over-the-topness i not she, only there's I don't think there's anything that's necessarily that stands out, but I will say that it does showcase like the characterizations of all of them really well. Cause uh, you know, this is where we see the new like happy Mitchum brothers, uh, candy. She's a little, a little more on top of it where there's still that aloof mm-hmm. nature to her, but there's also, she also seems to be happy to present everything to Bush no Mullins. And of course, Dougie, he's just like, still, he's just kind of, he's very passive, but he's also very funny about it. So I just think that scene just it just kind of highlights all these characters just perfectly where they're at at that point. Yeah, and that's that's after a big night at Santino's. 
when do you have any thoughts on uh uh cooper looking off into the distance when he hears heartbreaking on the piano or apparently when he hears that song or any of the other reveries that he has throughout that scene even even when the slot lady is talking to him introducing her son with the interesting name denver um he's just sort of gazing you know um, I think that in terms of anything like that, because there's a lot of introspective moments with Dougie, I really think that it's just Cooper where he's not quite in control of his body. It's like I was saying before, is that if Mr. C is this active evil that somehow could uh, mm. circumvent being in the Black Lodge, that Cooper can only be confined to this exact opposite. So I think it's just that Cooper's very aware of who he is, but he just can't act on it. And um, I think that he's doing the best he can, and honestly, it seems to be that's working. But yeah, I think in terms of uh, of like the slot lady and the song, it's just these little moments where it's like he, he that Cooper really is underneath there, and I think that he can have the understanding of what uh, helping the slot lady, how what that did to her, uh, the Mitchum brothers, uh, how like how they they value uh, Dougie greatly. So I think that there's a, a lot of those small scenes throughout that just show that Cooper is underneath there. And uh, I think the fact, and I think that's why I'm fine with the Vegas storyline, why Dougie is there for so long, because mm. he is there the whole time. It's just like, it's just as frustrating for him as it is for some of the viewers. Yeah, I, I, I from the first time I watched uh, The Return, I was a big fan of that storyline. Um, but I could understand why others are not, certainly. I, and for most me, people who weren't, came around i think because the the uh you know once you have a sense of what's happening there then you can kind of appreciate it a little bit more or, or maybe try to figure it out in a different way but i think for me i remember the very first time i watched it when i first saw him become dougie i thought oh no what is this and then the moment <laughs> that jade has to get him out of the car is like oh he's gonna be stuck like this for a while hmm. and there was a brief moment where i wasn't sure how i felt about it but not long after, I would say during the Silver Mustang scene, when he first goes in, I kind of just accept, like, yeah, we're not going to see Cooper for a while. And because uh, I think for me, and I, I'll say I'll expand more when I get to a Dougie Jones episode, but I think of in season two, it's when he's suspended from the FBI. He talks to Diane uh, on the on the tape and he talks mm -hmm. about how he hopes it's not too late to start a family. And I feel like this whole thing is like exactly that, where it's like he was stuck in the Black Lodge for 25 years. It seemed like, uh, you know, this would just be a thing that he could never, ever do. But here he is where he has this family that uh, that he helps better their lives just by being around them. And he can still, it's a rough patch because he has to clean up the mess of the Doug and Tulpa, but he can still have those good family moments. Where do you think Cooper is during those 25 years? I, I think that he is indeed in the wait, or yeah, he's in the waiting room. And I know people have a discussion or have discourse about how long it feels to him. I honestly think he feels every moment. I think that's a factor of why he's so slow when he gets to the real world. Because when you spend nearly half of your life in this like otherworldly, like uh, presumably malevolent, malevolent type of atmosphere, yeah. that your sense of time it doesn't really matter to you. So I think that's another factor of like why Dougie is the way he is. And do you think he's in different places at once? Like, do you think he's uh, he's Mr. C and he's Dougie and he's in the Red Room, like, kind of simultaneously? Uh, this is something I've thought about. I think in terms of Dougie, it is just Dougie in that moment. 
But I think that there's something about, you know, the superimposed Cooper we see in part 17 where there is something about him being in the in the waiting room or the red room or the black watch or whichever people like to refer to. That mm -hmm. that's what's really uh, at play in terms of the more uh, more omnipresent aspect of Cooper and like the magician part of him. If if this is some sort of uh, partial reality or. Um cooper perception like if he's like kind of watching from the red room as, as some people uh bring that idea up um let's just say that just for fun let's say the mitchin brothers are like they're not actually like real characters they're like uh stand-ins for certain ideas or something like that um i know david lynch has said about bob that he's kind of like a uh an abstraction or, or an abstraction in human form who said something along those lines you know where it's not necessarily like this real character um the mitchum brothers presumably are real characters but if, if they're not if they're like sort of representations for something else you, you have any uh have any thoughts um actually this i don't necessarily have thoughts about them in vegas but i do have thoughts about them when they reach twin peaks um is okay if we kind of shift towards like part 16 and 17 for this <laughs> Yeah, because we did address everything about them helping Sonny Jim and Janie E while Dougie, after he's been electrocuted. Uh, and they do promptly help him when they get to, you know, to get out of Vegas and into Twin Peaks. And I think that is where it's real to a certain degree. But I think there's something in Part 17 where it's it's specifically when Cooper, when he calls Frank Truman... And he's like, he's very enthused, like, hey, is the coffee on? Yeah. And the thing is that that Twin Peaks sign is immaculate. It looks exactly the same as we saw, like, what we see in 1989. And there's something about that where it's like, the world of Twin Peaks has changed way too much. Like, there's so much that's changed that it's hard to believe that sign would still be there. And I guess also on top of uh, on top of that, uh, this, not that this had to do with the Mitchum brothers, but it's like when Jade, when she cleans out her Jeep, and then uh, the the guy who cleaned it, he has the key for room three one five. Yeah. On the back, it says "clean place, reasonably priced." I think there's something about how Cooper, where uh, where he's kind of imposing certain things, and I think that uh, the Twin Peaks sign is kind of that. And this it does tie into the Mitchum brothers in part mm -hmm. seventeen, and also where the passivity of these characters starts to come in because there's just this converging where all these people come in for the Freddy versus Bob fight and they're all just yeah. kind of stand there. You know, I will say is that they, they do have that great line that says one for the grandkids where, yeah. and I feel like that we haven't really brought this up too much because between the one for the grandkids and, uh, in part 16, once again, where they're passive, where Chantal Hodge and the Polish account have their shootout. It's like, what the fuck kind of neighborhood is this? It's like, <laughs> People are under a lot of stress, Bradley, yeah. where it's like they have these jokes where it's like you can see them coming a mile away. But there's something about Robert <laughs> Knepper's delivery that's just perfect, where Pure. you can never grow tired of it. It's just this thing that just ever, the ever. scene, the scene would not be the same without it ever. It's pure comedic genius. Um, and I know people who have that delivery, you know, and they're just they're just uh, fantastic. Oh yeah, and, and I, I love how how not tough looking um, Jim Belushi is, you know, but how tough he is. But on the surface, and and the puppy dog faces that he makes often, you know, and even when he says, "I want to kill," you know, "I want," oh, or I just hate him so bad, you know, "I want to kill that guy." He's still like, you want to pinch his cheek. Mm -hmm. So, 
But yeah, I think the, uh, I, I guess I said everything on my end about uh, the reality bending, uh, at least when they get to Twin Peaks. Did you have any thoughts about how you viewed it? Because I know that once you get to part 17, this is where everyone's kind of thoughts just kind of are, are kind of independent on their own and how they view Twin Peaks up until that point largely depends on how they view this Freddy versus Bob fight and kind of how these characters, how they kind of tie into it because it really is just Freddy, Bob, and even Cooper is pretty passive at that point. We're like, there's so many people in this room and uh, nearly all of them, including the Mitchum brothers, are just kind of there. Yeah, I I have not untangled that whole puzzle myself. Um, I've seen and read and heard different takes on it. I'm... I would say very much most partial to the approach that uh, John Thorne brings in, in his book, Ominous Wish. Um, I find that the most persuasive by no means is that like the, uh, the definitive account. That's just the explanation that seems to make the most sense to me. And just to make sure, just for anyone who hasn't read Ominous yeah. Wish, uh, is there anything that John wrote that really resonated with you in that? Yeah, that, that that that's the clearest illustration of the idea that Cooper is like the main uh, the main filter, like to the to the majority of of uh, the return. That the events when they're happening in reality, and then perhaps even if they're not, they're kind of like his particular personal take on it. Um, often viewed like frustratingly from this stuck place in the red room. Um, while like while his two halves like his pure good and his pure bad halves are like out in the world doing their thing that's probably a pretty bad summary of it but the idea that like cooper's the the dreamer not like literally somebody who dreams but the fact that uh or the con or the idea that we all have our own filters on reality and maybe there is or maybe there isn't like a base reality but everybody uh, there's probably no way around the fact that we all kind of have a subjective like perception of things. And, you know, you and I can view the same events, but we're often not going to have like, we're not going to have like the, you know, a, a carbon copy view of it. We're going to filter it through our own history, through our own perception, um, through, our, <laughs> through our own programming to some extent. If it comes to politics, for example, um, we're all programmed to some extent, some of us more or less than others. So that's going to give us a little bit of a tulpa element as far as how we view things. Um, so, yeah, I think that whole scene is, I guess he would, he would also say that it's an exaggerated sense of Cooper has like kind of like an exaggerated sense of self at that moment where he gets to be like the one and only and, I don't want to go on and on. I'd, I'd rather rather recommend anybody else like go check it out for themselves. But oh, sure, that, that, that's, that, that's like that's like one of the only things that really kind of sounded coherent to me as far as interpreting that scene. Yeah, that, that's the thing about uh, about like character arcs that end at part seventeen is that there's never really a good way to end it because there's so much ambiguity. I mean, there's mm. stuff like the final dossier where you can be like, there's a continuation of that scene, but it really is just primarily focused on Tammy. So even then it's kind of mm. hard to explain, like, you know, the talk, you know, discussing the Mitchum brothers or James or Lucy, uh, Frank Truman. There's just so many characters in there. And again, there's just, it, it, there's just so much to really just 
uh, to unpack and uh, never really sure how to take it and how to conclude it. Yeah, but the Mitchum brothers are, uh, they are our focus uh, for today. So what do you make of them in that scene, in that setting? I I I think the my big takeaway, at least uh, one of the first ones I think of, is the one for the grandkids is like the perfect way to end like the the most bizarre battle that you could have ever possibly put to put it mildly. But I think that was the big one. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, there is a certain passivity to the characters when they reach Twin Peaks. But so I think that Robert Nepper to have that line is just the best tension breaker. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, please. Oh, no, I was going to say is that uh, I do remember when I did my interview with Amy Shields is that uh, I would mention how uh, Dougie, now that he became Cooper, that we're just kind of going off in that trajectory. If we're if we're going to kind of bypass that it's a dream world or maybe it returns to quote unquote reality mm. that uh, that Candy, she'd still be on her trajectory the same way Dougie Jones was and it would actually help the Mitchum brothers further. Again, there's a lot of stipulations to it, but I'm just kind of just going with, like, in the final dossier, if they're talking about as if it's reality. And again, whether it's Laura was killed or Laura went missing, that's a whole debate in of itself. But if yeah. we're just going with, like, Candy, uh, Mandy, and Sandy, and then the Mitchum Brothers returning to Vegas, that they would still, that Candy would find ways to be able to help the Mitchum Brothers stay on that path. Yeah, it's interesting. Um... Let's say uh, let's say we take Jacoby's glasses, right? They're, they're red and the blue, and I know you have a pair. Oh yeah, <laughs> and oh, I know yeah, you can tell me, Yeah, and I know you can tell me where to get a pair because I, I have that link bookmarked. Um, but let let's just say you know, in this eye we have Bradley, in this eye we have Rodney, and we put those glasses on, and we look at Twin Peaks, and we look at. Twin Peaks the return even like from outside or even from inside the show um what do you see when you put like those glasses on and you look at the show um I definitely see two hardened criminals where we're, maybe we're a little removed from how terrible they are in some cases because uh you know it's anyone who's been out to Vegas like you it's like you have to be a very certain type of person to uh survive that type of environment i don't care how rich or how poor you are you have to be a certain type of person and i think that if we're going to go with the beginning that maybe their time in the orphanage would be them learning how to survive and this is like just kind of the line of work they fell into and uh it's like what lynch says where it's like there's a certain closeness that they have where there's that very family dynamic it's like you were saying before about how you know they're very nice to the people that are in their lives and they can be very ice cold to the people who are you know who are like basically opposed to them and uh you know that's kind of the where they're at and then uh candy and dougie are the ones that shift that trajectory candy a little more of a slow burn but dougie more of like a at least what we're seeing in the vegas storyline and just kind of taking it as reality versus any dreamlike aspect. But those are two key characters that really just bring them back to the light. And, uh, you know, what? And again, going with what I was saying before is that if Candy is the slow burn, that she'll keep him on that trajectory. I think that sums up the uh, sums it up at a cursory glance. Was there anything else that I could or should explore on that? No, no, just curious. Um, a couple, a couple little tidbits that I had written down were, um, well, first my, my wife's take the first time she watched it with me, she's like, uh, oh, this is a uh, girl's next door, which was a, that was a show with, uh, Hugh Hefner and 
his three girlfriends and that was like for e entertainment television and that, that was just like the first thought she had when she saw candy mandy sandy with the mitchum brothers i thought that was interesting as a first impression like like uh that is not <laughs> that is not like a reality that most people are in touch with um you know having breakfast in your silk robe and having the big huge pitcher of milk for your cereal and you know the whole thing and to have well appointed and well dressed um companions or or servers or roommates or employee whatever they are um but it is still doable i don't know who wants to do that but it, it is still doable to like create a life and a lifestyle that is completely like unique like almost movie like mm -hmm. so to, to some extent like their whole lifestyle is com completely ludicrous but it's still actually like if you want to create your own world we are allowed to do that, you know, here on Earth. You know, we could create our own orbits. We could create our own world, and, and they seem to have done that. So that's kind of neat. Um, I like, I love their line deliveries. I mean, there's so many line deliveries, inc including when when Rodney fires. It's like, you know, you you effing fired to the guy on the ground. It's just really beautifully delivered. And then when when Janie is hugging, um, when Janie is, is hugging Cooper. And Cooper tells her, you know, we'll be back again. Like, the Mitchum brothers are cool enough to see what's happening there and, like, not to meddle. Like, I like that they have some uh, some common sense at that moment. Um, but really, there's there's so many. The, the fact that they're brothers, and so you got the brothers Mitchum, the brothers Horn, the brothers Fusco. Who else? Uh, the brothers Truman, I guess. Maybe, maybe more. Any thoughts on that, that there's so many pairs of brothers? Um... There's, I guess there's one thing about the brothers, but I think in terms of the Vegas uh, plot thread, I seem to notice the uh, three seems to be a common component. You know, you think of, like, uh, there's the three Fusco brothers, there's Candy, Sandy, and Mandy, or the slot machines have three. Uh, there's just a lot of aspects of three and how... I think it's in throughout all of the return, but I, I definitely see it hyper focused on uh, on the Vegas storyline. So I have thought about like how duality is a very prominent part in in Lynch's work, but I also think there's some about three being more distinctly pro pronounced in the return, and uh, it's something that I really noticed on my last rewatch that I try to try to figure out because every time I do a rewatch you think you're kind of happy with where you're at, but there's this one little thing that makes you think, okay, maybe I need to rework it or I shouldn't be too comfortable with where I stand currently. Yeah, that's interesting. But I think that does wrap it up, though. Was there anything else we should mention about the Mitchum Brothers before plugging any social media? No, just, just how much damn fun they are to watch on screen and how spectacularly acted they were, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that every single time they're on the screen, your 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 body actually like moves. <laughs> At least mine does moves toward the screen. Mm -hmm. um, it's such an interesting relationship they had with with Candy, especially. I I can't wait until you, if you ever do a Candy episode, I can't wait to hear that character talked about um, by somebody who can see things that you know that I can certainly can't because she, she's one of the great mysteries of the show and she's always attached to to the Mitchum brothers and you know, they obviously have a soft spot for her. Um, it's so weird that the other two women don't speak at all. Um, the other uh, one little quick thing I wanted to ask you was, was there anything, I know you got to meet all of them. 
the actresses. Um, and w was there anything as a result of that meeting that changed your take on the return or? I'm not sure if it necessarily changed my outlook on the return at large, but I will say is that they are, there is something where you meet them in person and they're, it's shocking to say because of how they're presented in the return, but mm. they are so much more radiant in person. And the way that they talk about Lynch and the reverence that they had. Uh, yeah, I think that I remember like, uh, like one of them was just talking about how they like, they wouldn't even just be in the makeup trail. They would just be watching Lynch directing the whole time because they were so fascinated. So there's a lot of stuff from like, uh, from that angle that I thought was extremely fascinating, but I don't know if it necessarily changed how I look at Candy, Sandy or Mandy. Yeah. I think that uh, it's like it's like when I did my interview with Amy Shields, where she's uh, where she she doesn't want to give away too much. I think she wants uh, you know much like Lynch, Frost, and Sabrina Sutherland, where she wants people to think of it in the way that they see it, where she doesn't want yeah. her uh, opinion to really influence them. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, I, I have I have nothing else to add other than love for the Mitchum brothers and uh, appreciation for you. You're doing you're doing such a great job, and uh, it's it's really impressive. And I appreciate you uh, asking me to chat. Nice to meet you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess the uh, you know to let people know because you do something that's like quite different from the other Twin Peaks pages. Was there anything else you want to talk about Twin Peaks grammar where people can find you? Twitter probably uh, TP Grammar. And probably everything would go through there. Yeah, that would probably be the hub. And you'll want to mute me soon enough because I'm definitely an over-tweeter. But I commute a lot, so usually I'm talking into my phone when I'm driving and maybe sending a tweet out that way. Uh, usually in response to something I'm listening to or something I recently read that's Twin Peaks related. I do have a life outside of Twin Peaks, and it's a very satisfying <laughs> and pleasant life. But uh but as far as the Twin Peaks stuff goes, I'm, I guess I'm currently in a bit of an obsession. So there's a audio stuff. Artists love Twin Peaks. And the cover art is a beautiful heart-framed heart picture of the Mitchum brothers with uh, Dougie in the distance holding a box of cherry pie. So I would say that those would be good places. But yeah, no, I think that uh, I think that wraps it up. But um, yeah, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, of course, I'll put links out to Instagram, Twitter, Artists Love Twin Peaks, so people can find you uh, rather easily. Yeah, and I thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Ah, my pleasure yeah. as well. Yeah, okay, man. I'll, I'll take care. You I'm <laughs> sorry.